Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The 2024 Defense Authorization Bill caused a sigh of relief in parts of the Pentagon. Why? Congress decided not to impose new rules and requirements for using other transaction authority, OTA, an increasingly popular way to streamline acquisition of new technologies. And anyhow, DOD recently updated OTA guidance on its own. For more, Federal News Network's Jason Miller spoke to the director for contract policy in the Office of Defense Pricing and Contracting, Mary Catherine Robinson. For the years between FY16 and FY22, we had about 15,000 total OT actions, and that includes mods and OT awards for about $70 billion in spend. And these are the years that we specifically saw the huge growth in. So like in 2016, we had about 333 actions for $1.3 billion. In FY20, we really peaked because of COVID, right? We used a lot of OTs for COVID. We did about 3,200 actions for $16 billion. And then we've come down a little bit in our dollar spend. But right now in FY22, our last year of of full data, we had about 4,400 actions for about $10.7 billion. And right now we're thinking that, again, I don't have the final FY23 numbers, but I think that FY23 is going to come in around that. So again, a handful of OTs 15 years ago. So this is a huge growth. I think people are seeing the the benefits of the OTs. I think they're seeing the benefit of of using non-traditional defense contractors. And I think that's where the growth is coming from. Appreciate the the data. I think it's really helpful to to understand the growth and the fact that yes, during COVID, OTs played a big role in a lot of the efforts to get vaccines and understanding what's happening. Do you break down where those actions go? There's so many in technology, so many in weapons, or so many in in, in different pieces and parts that DoD can, can touch. I have a couple numbers in regards to that, I think, but I just really now I know that about eighty percent is R and D goes to research and development. And then we have a couple towards weapons and ammunition, electronic and communication equipment or professional services. But I don't have a breakdown of the specific R&D ones. I'm sorry. You yeah. see a lot of the awards and, and you know people will say, oh, well, it goes to the usual suspects, right? Pick your big defense contractor or big professional services contractor. First of all, what do you say about that? Because I think that's a concern about OTs. And second, do you have data or anything that says actually that is we see those press releases because those companies are big and they put the press releases out, but we just don't see the small pre- the small companies who probably don't have a big press machine to, to push them out. What, what data do you have about this usual suspects concern? The requirement is for a non-traditional defense contractor to be part of the team in a significant way, right? So in FY22, 92% of our OTs were awarded to those those OT contractors or performers that had an a non-traditional defense contractor performer on there doing something in a in a significant way. So what is significant, right? So the agreements officers actually held to f- try to figure that out and to make that determination and make that independent judgment. So again, s- significant is not necessarily dollars. Significant could be sp- specific to a key technology or a specific cost reduction. Some of the things that we look at is, again, does the NDC supply a new key technology product or process? Do they have a novel application or approach to the technology? Do they have a material increase in the performance efficiency of a key technology? Do they result in a material reduction in cost and schedule of a project? Or do they provide a material increase in the performance of the prototype project? 
So again, that does not necessarily mean that they're the prime contractor on something, but it does mean that they're they're doing some heavy lifting on the actual project itself. So again, agreements officers are held to that. They have to determine and they're required to validate and document that status. And again, we were able to make that determination on 92% of the projects that we do. So even if it's going to Lockheed Martin, that does not mean that we don't have NDCs out there. Uh, DOD released an updated OTA guide earlier this summer. And uh, let's start there. What does the guide look like? Why did you release it? What was the impetus for the update? And, And then we can get into what's in the guide itself. Because of this growth and because of everything that these OTs can do for us, we've worked to update that OT guide. And we want to be able to help this DOD acquisition community, as well as our contractors, our partners in industry, academia, and then also nonprofits to help define what an OT is and help them create their the best OTs that they can they can create. So in this guide, what do we do? Um, we did a couple things that we had to do, right? We made it those updates based on changes in statute and regulation and recommendations that we received from the DODIG and from the Government Accountability Office. But then we also added uh, administrative guidance and best practices for things like reporting, funding, participation and validation of those NDCs, those non-traditional defense contractors, protest procedures, agreements officer warranting and training, and then other considerations for folks to take into account as they move forward with their OTs. You mentioned some of the changes that you worked in around statute and and regulation and recommendations. Let's start there. Uh, Maybe highlight a few, one or two of them that really stood out to you from the sense of, hey, this was a big change from the last time we put the guide out, which I think if you correct me if I'm wrong, it was maybe 2018, 2019 timeframe? That sounds about right. So one of the things that we did, and this is something that came out in the FY23 NDAA, was a reference in regards to uh, following production OTs, right? So the understanding before was that you had to reference in your prototype OT that you were possibly going to do a follow-on production OT out of that. And that was the only way that you could have your sole source follow-on. You had to reference it in the solicitation for the prototype. Well, something in the FY23 NDA actually took that requirement out and said, well, you don't have to explicitly state it. You can just move towards a, a production OT at the end. So that's one of the updates that we made. It is still a best practice, though, to put that in your OT to say, hey, in your solicitation, we are planning on doing a production OT, but it is no longer required. If we could just kind of pull the string on that for a second as well, talk a little bit about why that's an important change. Is it, would that slow down or would that encumber DOD from kind of moving, hey, we had this successful prototype, let's broaden this? Or was it just something around industry? They wanted more uh, opportunity to bid or to to apply for or to get on, on board with the OT? Yeah, I think there was some confusion on when we were doing OTs on the prototype side on where we were going to go with that and how we can push forward and how that competition would work and ensure that we could have a kind of, like you said, a quick turn to production. So this way we're able to, to, again, make that determination as long as we can show that there's been a success at that prototype OT based on the criteria that we've set for success on that prototype, we can move straight to a a follow-on non-competitive effort. And that could be either a FAR-based or another OT for production. So this is really kind of a clarification and to ensure, again, that people have a great understanding of what could come out of that prototype OT. One of the other interesting bits and pieces about the 
OT guide is the myth busting. And there's, I think, 12 myths in all. Talk a little bit about some of those myths, maybe the ones that were, were most prevalent or the ones that stood out to you. And then let's talk about how you are busting them. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Especially, I recommend everybody go check out Appendix D of the OT guide because there are these myths here that we all, I would say, even some of us here have internalized, right? And then how do we tell people that it's different? So one of the biggest one, I think, is in regards to OTs not needing to be competitive, right? That's a huge one. And that's what we continually hear that we're not doing. You don't not need competition for OTs. Okay, well, you actually do. So as we do not necessarily have to follow the Competition and Contracting Act for an OT, but we are supposed to be looking to get competition to the maximum extent practicable. And we want competition, right? Just like in a FAR-based contract, competition actually helps us. It will lower prices. It will get us high-quality products. And then it will also get us innovative solutions. And then the other one, like we were just talking about, the other benefit of a, comp- a competitive prototype OT is that you can go to a non-competitive follow-on production award out of that. So number one, we absolutely want competition. And that's something that I hope that we've dispelled in this document. Mary Catherine Robinson, Director for Contract Policy in the Office of Defense Pricing and Contracting. That's part of the Office of the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Acquisition. She was speaking there with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Check out Jason's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're we're going through a a culture project at our work. Oh, great. It's um, 
It's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Right. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had 
gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, "Okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there taking notes on the meeting and said, go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way. And I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made. And I realized in my own sense, I wasn't listening to very different opinions. And I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions 
expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.